Yeah, if you refer to um, the Rack Bible there this morning, these black ones, you'll find this passage on page 857. We're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. You know, it's such a significant passage in all of history, this event, and for each one of us personally. And would you mind standing with me this morning as we read this? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, great joy, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with a haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, it truly is one of the most well-known and beloved stories, not just in all of scripture, but in all of history. Famous long before Linus preached it to Charlie in 1965. I wonder what pictures have already come to mind or voices you hear, those traditions or nostalgic images. And it probably would be better to just shake those all out of our head, to hear this afresh, to see it anew. Certainly countless songs and paintings and stories and movies and plays and so much more have been centered around this passage. And so it's amazing then if we would read the simplicity and the relative normalcy of the central moment of verse 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came 
for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Of all that has been said and created around this incredible event, and I think rightfully so, may we also come back to the simplicity of it. And aside from the location of the birth, the relatively normal birth. And yet this is the most joyful event in all of history. Just like last week, we, we needed to redeem the word wonder. Maybe we need to redeem the word joy this morning. This should make us wonder, to marvel. Imagine that every angel is poised watching this event in Bethlehem. However they did that, scattered across the heavens or able to be even in closer proximity. Where, where else would they be? Such a powerful moment, yet cloaked in humility. An incredibly beautiful moment, yet filled with blood, sweat, tears, dirt, and excrement. This is good news of great joy for all peoples, the central event of all history, and yet it happened in almost complete obscurity. The most influential man who would ever live was born in the most humble of estates, laid in an animal's feeding trough for his first resting place. The one who would make it his life's ambition to welcome the outcast and the lowly is born into a family who is unwelcomed and marginalized. The amazing juxtaposition of the nativity, or really truly the gospel itself, Jesus came to turn everything upside down, or probably right side up. He would later say in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give even his life as a ransom for many. This is how a servant would be born. He wasn't born in the temple or in a palace or a cathedral. He's born amongst animals in what we think of as a stable, although that word is not there. Likely the lower room of a relative's home. Lots of homes in, in those days were built to accommodate their animals at night so they could keep them safe. And they would come in to the bottom floor of a home and the family would live and sleep above on a second floor. And it seems that Joseph and Mary are given at least some refuge in one of these homes amongst the animals on the dirt floor with perhaps a little bit of hay to cushion their sleep. In Luke 22, verse 25, Jesus would say, again, surrounding this concept, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. If you want to be great, he would say, serve. His whole life modeled that. 
even prior to his birth, when he said yes to the Father to come down from heaven to earth and to enter the womb of a teenage virgin. And why is it this way? Why is this the right order under the supreme God? Because if you know of no need, you need no God. Jesus has come for those who know their need, for those who, as we sang, are hungry and thirsty, who know that they are poor of spirit, that they are lacking and wanting. And for those who are, we find Jesus, the great one, becoming like the least, the mightiest becoming like the meek. Luke is clearly at work, as we've seen these weeks now, as we've progressed through this little mini-series here in the Advent season, hope, grace, wonder, and joy. Luke is clearly at work illustrating this amazing, astonishing juxtaposition of the nativity and the gospel. Chapter 2 opens the same way as chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 5, he highlights who the ruler or the king of the land was. Not only does that ground us into history, that these aren't just uh, fantastical events or mythical uh, stories, it grounds us into history. Luke is also creating that juxtaposition. Who is the ruler of the land? Herod the Great in those days, who maybe changed the landscape and the face of Jerusalem more than anyone else outside of Solomon, perhaps. But some would argue Herod did even had greater grandeur in architecture and pomp and circumstance. And here we are in chapter 2, and Luke highlights Caesar Augustus, perhaps the greatest, most influential ruler the history had ever known. One nation or one empire had more authority and more geography under its reign than any other in history up to that point. Caesar Augustus was called the savior of the world. He was called Lord. His birthday, in fact, was celebrated as a national holiday. Even in some regions, many began their calendars. How, how confusing would this be? They began their calendars on Caesar's, Augustus's birthday and moved forward from there. Not all regions and areas came along. Imagine traveling around and saying, so what day is it? What time of year is it? And sometime in the middle of this man's reign, perhaps at the height of his reign, a little boy is born 2,000 miles away from Rome in this stable-like room in, practically, in practical obscurity in this unknown little town to an unwed teenage virgin. This boy who is the true savior who would rule a kingdom in both time and space far greater than the Roman Empire. In fact, in comparison, it would make the Roman Empire seem like nothing more than a footnote in history. And he led not by force, but by love. Not by enforcing taxes to accomplish his purposes, but by, by giving his very life. And once again, we read this passage from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. This is the right side up way. 
the gospel kingdom perspective that we must get our heads around. What hope, what grace, what wonder, all of those themes that we've been seeing already, they come together truly in this passage in, in chapter 2 here. Luke points out the hope of a Savior the, who promises peace, the grace of a Lord, a Master who has come to rescue, to love, and to heal. And he points out the wonder. That's that very same word that we looked at last week that we see at the end of this passage. Thalmazo in the Greek. They wondered. They marveled. They were astonished at what they were hearing and what they were seeing. Again, the greatest has become the lowest. The mighty has become the meek from birth through life to death on a cross. And now all those who know they are poor in spirit, hungry and thirsty, longing for more, shall be filled, shall be satisfied, shall have hope, joy, and wonder full by the grace of this king. As if, as if to prove kind of the, from our perspective, upside down nature of Jesus' coming, who are the first to hear of this news but the shepherds? the outcasts of society, potentially even the scorned ones who were given this opportunity to care for flocks in exchange just to have some semblance of freedom. There's record that many of them were criminals given the chance to serve in this way rather than pay some form of restitution which maybe they did not have or even enter into jail or prison or slavery in that day. And here's who God has chosen to reveal himself, to pursue and to make known the coming of the king. God saw them and invited them into his story in this incredible way. We've been reminded of hope and grace and wonder. May they continue to grow maybe throughout today throughout tomorrow, into Tuesday, and maybe deep into the new year. I guess we could focus probably on any one of them in this passage, but it's what I want to focus on is joy, the joy to the world, unspeakable joy we've been already singing about, surprising joy, great joy. Here's what the angel said to these outcast and scorned shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. And just like it's always been, when the gospel is first heard, it is nearly unbelievable. The, the shepherds are filled with great fear, not immediately with hope and joy. And then it seems that they are at least a little bit wrestling with doubt. They say, let us go and see this thing that has been, as if to believe. Let us see what has occurred. And Mary and Joseph, if we center in on, on them, they must have been filled with wonder, with this marvel and astonishing reality that is now theirs, this child before them. But as we enter into their story, it's hard to imagine that they are filled with great joy, isn't it? Just consider what they have been through. I guess in the most immediate, they've been on this journey 
from Nazareth to Bethlehem, about 100 miles. And again, we like to think of Mary having a donkey to ride, as if, as if someone would have lent her one, because truly they were too poor to own any animals. We'll see this later when they bring the offering of two doves rather than a lamb. They cannot afford more. They are poor. And nowhere do we see donkeys show up in the story. We just like to think that there was greater comfort, don't we? That they didn't travel a hundred miles on foot with Mary nine months pregnant. So they're tired. They're worn. And they come to pay tribute, to register. Oh, isn't that nice? To register, put, to put their names on a card or in order to get a card or some, some form of proof that they actually have been accounted for, which means they have paid tribute. They have paid taxes to Caesar and to the Roman Empire so that if they were stopped along the road or along the way or with any kind of business exchange by any authority and said, are you valid? They could prove that they have paid. And this tribute for them may have been all that they owned. It may have been all of their savings that they scraped together to come and present just so that they could go about life now with this new baby. Many chose to try to live life on the run or in opposition of Rome. It didn't go well. But they went because they wanted to establish this life. So imagine that they are on this journey. They've now, they're now about to pay tribute with everything that they have, perhaps leaving very little left for a wedding that's still to come. Certainly wouldn't be like the weddings that we would celebrate. There'd be very few there with very little expense to, to give. So they're worn, they're tired, they're poor, they're alone, perhaps even shamed. We read in this story, inn, don't we? There was no room for the inn, and we want to think holiday inn. Or comfort in. Oh, I'm so sorry you came late. It's full. There's, there's no vacancy. But we would wish we could. It's nothing of the sort. One, they didn't have the money to pay for an inn. This is almost assuredly Joseph's relatives. This is his hometown. Perhaps distant. Perhaps second or third cousins. Maybe it's not the first home that they went to. And family couldn't just turn them away, but almost as if to indicate their judgment or their scorn. No, we will not make space with us, but so you don't have to be outside, you can stay down here with the animals. Almost as if to say, they're still not married, and look, Mary, she's about to give birth. I mean, if they want to be like animals, let them be amongst the animals. They're tired and poor, alone and shamed, certainly dirty, and completely uncertain at what tomorrow brings. Are they joyful? It's hard to imagine. And I guess it depends on what our definition of joy is. So if the angel was speaking on behalf of God, which I think we could assume, and he was speaking the truth that this is good news of great joy for all people. I don't see an asterisk except for Mary and Joseph and fill in the blank. This is 
good news of great joy for all peoples, could they be joyful? And maybe we need to redeem that word. Joy is not happiness or smiles or warm fuzzies, although that may accompany a sense of joy, but those are fleeting. Joy is much more deeply rooted and enduring. The Apostle Paul probably gives us the clearest teaching on joy, both through his words and his life. Imagine, now we shift the scene, but just as desperate and bleak kind of scene, Paul locked in a room under house arrest in Rome. Imagine his heart jumping every time the key turns in the lock that this might be when he's led out to his execution because those were the charges up against him. Eventually that would be true. But he's there in this room, perhaps in chains at times, but under watch and under arrest. He's been given parchment at least and paper, so he's a chance to write parchment and pen, to write to loved ones or friends. And he chooses to spend that time writing many letters, many which we have preserved for us in the scriptures, the prison letters, the prison epistles they're called. What would you write of if that was your circumstance? Would one of the primary things you write about be joy? Both the encouraging of your friends and loved ones to rejoice again and again, he would say it, and even to speak of his own joy. He says, Philippians chapter 1, this is kind of how he started this letter to the church in Philippi, a church which he loved. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. So there he is, under lock and key, perhaps in chains, praying for the churches and saying he's praying with great joy. So while in prison, in time, at times in chains, his joy is unchanged. It's a great title for a sermon series. So it's possible that if we shift our scene back to Mary and Joseph in this basement-type room amongst the animals, that they could be experiencing great joy, even though when they look around them, if they could be aware of their surroundings, and how could they not be? This is no sterile hospital room. They look around and say, I never thought life would lead here. How is, how is this the script? We had our plans. We had our thoughts. We're young with hope ahead of us. Everything has changed. And here we are. And God said he's come to bless us. He's chosen us. He's going to use us. And this is our circumstance. Do I have to help you connect some of those dots? I think every one of us has been in a place like that if we're not currently. I never thought life would look like this. I had my thoughts and my dreams. Some were big, some were small. They weren't unreasonable. But how could this be the script? If God loves and has chosen, why does life look like this? This is not pleasant, comfortable, or fun. Are they joy full? Have they yet responded to this great promise that this is great joy for all peoples? 
And we can't answer that. We're not told. We're given some glimpses of their response of Mary continuing to lay up these things, to treasure, to ponder. Right? She's working this out, I think. The point is, it is possible. It is possible that even in the most bleak, dire, uncertain circumstances, that true joy can be known. God promises it for us. He never said it was easy. It may be simple. When life is full of pain or grief, brokenness, depression, or when we are like Mary and Joseph, tired, poor, alone, shamed, completely uncertain about what tomorrow holds, asking the how did I get here type questions. Paul says this at the end of that same letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Remember where he's writing from. Rejoice in the Lord always. Did you miss it? I'll say it again. Rejoice. They had to be asking the same thing. Isn't Paul, he wrote this while in prison, right? He hasn't gotten out like we didn't hear about this. How is he writing to us to rejoice? We're languishing even for him. Praying and interceding for his deliverance. And he's calling us to rejoice. The Lord is near. That's what he says. The Lord is near. Do not forget that. He's near me in this prison cell. He's near you. He's with you at all times. That's where your joy comes from. Do not be anxious about anything. In everything by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And here's the promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is at hand. He expands on this in verse 11. He says, I've learned in whatever situation, whatever circumstance, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I've had both in my life. In any and every circumstance, I've learned this secret of facing plenty and hunger. And I bet if he could expand on that, he would say, in times of plenty, I wasn't any closer to God. In fact, the times of want and longing and hunger often bring us to a place of desperate need for a savior, for a rescuer and a deliverer. Here's what he says is the secret, ultimately, along the lines of the Lord is near. He says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Regardless of circumstances, this is how we have true joy because Jesus has come and is with us and desires to work through us. That's the simple but not easy secret that Paul is expounding on. That's how it's possible that Mary and Joseph could have had true joy at that moment, though they had such uncertainty about even what tomorrow would hold for them, while they had nothing to show for it, while they were completely alone and outcast, true joy is possible even for them. And joy can be ours. Joy can be ours as we ultimately are being asked to believe the very same things that God was asking Joseph and Mary to believe as he spoke to them through the angels. Believe this. I see you. I know you. 
I am with you. I will never leave you. I have a purpose for you beyond what you could even imagine. And even when it doesn't feel like it, I am working it for your good and for my glory. Believe. Trust me. And no one ever said that was easy. But God promises repeatedly through his scriptures in stories like this one, but from beginning to end, these very same things that are for all who would come to him. This is how we can know true joy even when our life seems to be crumpling, even when we are walking through the longest night, even when our lips flow with lamentations more than praises. And consider Paul again. He is He's captive. He's captive by four walls and a door with no latch, perhaps even by chains, facing his own execution. None of us would trade places with Paul. And yet he rejoices and calls the church to rejoice, to pray always, to be thankful in all things, because the Lord is at hand. He is with you. Above all, While Paul might be captive, he is captivated by Jesus. If all we see are the walls of our current circumstances, perhaps trial, pain, suffering, isolation, grief, depression, with no way out and very little light coming in, then no wonder we're joyless, hopeless, anxious, But when those things do not define us, they cannot contain us. Our current circumstances may be very real. They may be very long. They may even lead to our final breath as they they did for Paul. But they are all temporary in light of eternity. And God proves repeatedly, again, through his scripture and through his promises for all eternity that what happened at Bethlehem night for Mary and Joseph, what they experienced, though outcast and alone and downwind of a donkey, that can be our reality also. The circumstances will be different, probably no donkeys. But the promise and the proof is the same. The God of the universe says, I see you, I know you, I made you, I have come, I am with you, I will never leave you, I have a purpose for you, it's beyond what you could ever imagine. I'm inviting you into my story. The story is not about you, but you have a part to play. Do you believe it? That that is the good news of great joy in the midst of a world that is full of loss, pain, grief, brokenness, suffering, and sin. Do you believe it, church? 
I'd say a good evidence to our belief is probably the quantity of our joy or the consistency of our joy. Perhaps we have more in common with the shepherds than we do with Mary and Joseph. We believe, and yet, Lord, help me see. I must see this, to know this, though I I believe. That famous prayer of the Father, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. It represents kind of the life process of a disciple, a follower of Jesus. I wonder if this is, for some, the reality this Christmas. If you're like the shepherds, has God gotten your attention in a remarkable way or a surprising way? Is he getting your attention? Not according to your script. Fear, uncertainty? Okay, yeah. What's the response? Are you seeking him? I have to assume, yes, you are listening. You are here. Though I suppose some have been dragged along. And maybe just now in this moment, as you stop thinking about all the other things and places you would rather be and whether your fantasy football team is winning the championship game or not, you would for a moment be present and hear the voice of God getting your attention and saying the very same things he said to his beloved Mary and Joseph and his beloved shepherds. There was no hierarchy there. Jesus came for all who are poor, tired, worn, weary, outcast, scorned, slandered, marginalized, and he proves it again and again and again. And he says to you the same things. What is your response? Are you seeking him? The shepherds say, let us go and see. Throughout scripture, the seeking of God is honored. We are commissioned and commanded to do so. The psalmist says it. Psalm 105.3. So these shepherds are being biblical. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. If you have an idea of where Jesus is, move with haste to be with him. That's the response of the shepherds. They went with haste to see with their very eyes. Certainly, Jesus says, those who do not see and yet believe, honor to them. Great faith. But we are repeatedly told to seek the Lord, to pursue him, to follow him, to be with him. And the model of the shepherds, that they do so with haste, would probably convict many of us. Many of us pursue Jesus if we get around to it, eventually. When we get our checklist done, he might fit in the margins, not the other way around. Do we move with haste in response to God getting our attention 
even in a remarkable, startling way. And perhaps that's for some of you in this moment. You did not expect to encounter the voice of God, and yet he is speaking to your heart, not through the voice or lips of a man, but through his enduring, living, and active word. How will you respond? Now, it would have been strange for the shepherds if they had said, well, well, that's good news. I'm tired, let's go back to bed and let's wake up tomorrow and go about our work. We've got a lot of sheep to take care of. The good news doesn't just stir us out of our slumber, but it wholly changes and moves us. Is that the way we respond to God's word? God has come, he is with us, he has spoken to us through Jesus, and now his preserved word Let's seek him all the more for his glory, for our joy, and for a world that is languishing for lack of it. Finally, joy is a mark of true discipleship. And if you've sat under my preaching, my teaching for any length of time, you know this is one of the most convicting areas in my life. It's a repeated prayer. Lord, where is my true joy? That's a fruit I need to grow. Grow it, Lord. Now, any on that famous list that Paul writes in another one of his prison epistles to the church in scattered throughout Galatia, and you probably know the one I'm referring to, chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit looks like this. It is love. And he goes on. There's eight more. And it's not that one is greater than the other. These are in a list of importance as if they could be quantified. Although when he starts with love, it's hard not to say, well, that, yeah, that's the greatest. We know that. That's the greatest commission and commandment and gift. Where does Paul go second? To joy. And even if they're not necessarily to be measured up against each other in some kind of rank system as greater fruit, you know, you've got the apples and the peaches and the bananas and the mangoes and all at the top and at the bottom, you've got the dragon fruit and, I don't know, durian. <laughs> I don't think we could say that they are ranked, but if in Paul's mind, at least, what comes out as, as, as almost right at the top, what, what comes out, what bubbles out out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, what is evident of the Spirit's work in and through us, love, joy. Then he gets to peace and to patience, and those would be whole other sermons. So I am with you as I wrestle with this same concept. Is my joy full? Am I a joyful person? That doesn't mean I would smile all the time, although I should smile more. It doesn't mean I'm feeling happiness all the time, although if happiness is, is related to contentment and to peace, then there should be more of it. But a true joy that regardless of circumstances is unshaken, a joy unchained. Lord, may it be. Lord, grow it. And is it possible that Paul lists joy second because our world is so filled with suffering and sorrow, with despair and depression, with even monotony and malaise, that joy stands out like a beacon in a dark world? Perhaps we'll have a picture of this tomorrow night 
afternoon, evening as we gather at four and we finish the service in somewhat of a traditional way, but it's a powerful image as we each hold a tiny flickering candle. One candle, not much light, although candles, or even one candle flame wins over the darkness. But that may be the extent of our joy, relatively, like one, one little candlelight flickering. Lord, may it not go out. And may we pray, Lord, that it becomes like a blaze, unquenchable. But what's beautiful in that picture as we come together with dozens or hundreds of other little lights, two things take place. One, it starts to glow like a beacon in the darkness. And two, our little indistinguishable light becomes indistinct amongst the many. And simply the light of God's people is known and the power of his spirit at work through them. Holy Spirit, grow our joy like that. May we be joyful. May it burn not just through the holidays, but deep into the new year, Lord willing, if you give us those days. May 2019 be marked by the fruit of joy in the life of your church. Would you pray that with me in the season ahead? May our joy be full. Invite the team to come and lead us in response. Catherine said I had to preach short because we've got four songs. Some are going, yeah, that was short. Others are going, that was short. So you're amongst friends. I wrote, I wrote a prayer. I'll pray it, and then I'll lead us into our response of communion and giving. Let me flip those. This is the one chance we have this Christmas to eat as a family, all of us, all together. We come to this table. It's too small to tuck up chairs around or to even all gather around. But as you do so, as we respond, as you come to the table or the tables in the back and receive these elements, we are both reminded of what Christ has done, that at that table so many years ago when he celebrated with his friends who became family, he does the same today. He brings into the present when we gather around the table, we say this is his body and this is his blood. He is present with us. And so we as his family gather. And though we might partake at different times and different moments, alone or with someone next to us or even in our whole, whole row gathering together, we are ultimately as his body coming around the table together in celebration of what he has done, what he will do, and what he is doing in this moment. And so no matter where your hope level is, your faith level is, your joy level is, he's inviting you to more. He's speaking and he's drawing. He's inviting you to come and pursue him. It doesn't matter how many questions you have, just like the shepherds would have. The response is, with haste come. No, we don't, it's okay, we don't have to run, there is time. Come as you are led. Receive, be the body. Receive again grace and mercy, forgiveness and healing. A tangible <laughs> expression of all these things that he has given us. Thank you, Jesus. We have a chance to give. The reason we pass offering bags is not for a tip to the quality of this sermon, but is for the joy of response 
of what God has done. Thank you, Lord. I love to give. Many of you give in different ways at different times in different places. Do not feel compelled, but respond as the Lord leads and stirs hearts. And as we sing, let's sing with joy, true joy. For some, it will be with tears down your face, and that's still joyful or can be. May it be. Let me read this prayer. Would you pray with me, church, in your hearts as God leads? Oh, Jesus, surprise us again with your coming. Remind us that you are here through your Holy Spirit. You see us, love us, and have a purpose for us beyond our imagination. Make our joy full this Christmas and deep into the new year. Teach us to make space for you and to cherish you before we ever seek to escape our current circumstances. Teach us to both fear you and love you, receive you and seek you, know you and make you known. Glory to God in the highest and peace to all who rest in your grace. Amen.